Southern American author Walker Percy tells the story of a middle-aged Will Barrett and a young escapee from a mental hospital named Allison in his novel, The Second Coming. Barrett struggles with the existence of God. And in one scene in the novel, Barrett describes his situation in this way. He says, I am surrounded by Christians. They are, generally speaking, a pleasant and agreeable lot, not noticeably different from other people, even though they, the Christians of the South, the USA, the Western world, have killed off more people than all other people put together. Yet I cannot say, or I cannot be sure, that they don't have the truth. But if they have the truth, why is it the case that they are repellent precisely to the degree that they embrace and advertise the truth? Even if one were to become a Christian, one might even become a Christian if there were few, if any, Christians around. Have you ever lived in the midst of 15 million Southern Baptists? A mystery. If the good news is true, why is one not pleased to hear it? Those are the comments from a fictional character in a novel. But you have to wonder how many real people look at real Christians and would say the exact same things. How many people would look at the Christians surrounding them and think to themselves, well, I mean, generally pleasant, not really noticeably different from other people. Oh, but how repellent when they talk about the truth or that they're not pleased to hear the truth from them. How many people do you think look at Christians and say to themselves, I might even become a Christian if there were any good ones around? Or how many ask themselves, why is the good news not pleasant to hear? Our topic this morning, which gets to the heart of the concern of Will Barrett, is the love of of the church. And we're going to be looking at it in 1 John chapter 3. As you heard Emily read, 1 John 3, we're going to begin in verse 11, we're going to go all the way through 26, and we're concerned with the love of the church. And we're going to see three things in this text. We're going to see, first of all, in verses 11 to 15, that Jesus commands us to love. Jesus commands us to love. That's verses 11 through 15. And then we'll see secondly in verses 16 through 18 that God reveals his love in Jesus. God reveals his love in Jesus. And finally in verses 19 through 26, we'll see our final point that our love assures us that we are saved. Our love assures us that we are saved. That's verses 19 to 26. So we're going to see three things. Jesus commands us to love. God has revealed his love in Jesus, and our love assures us that we are saved. And in all of these points, we're going to see one big idea. It's the main point of this passage, and it's this. We reveal God, 
and assure ourselves that we are saved by how we love one another. We reveal God and assure ourselves that we are saved by how we love one another. We're going to spend most of our time in 1 John 3, but you can't ignore 1 John 4. And so I'm going to jump over from time to time to reinforce the truth of 1 John 3. And then we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at maybe what some other parts of the Bible would say about the quality of our love as a church. So we're going to be all over the Bible. If you don't have a Bible open, I would encourage you to grab one. If you didn't bring one with you, there's Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. If you see one down the road, just elbow your neighbor, have them send it down. We're going to be in 1 John, which is almost to the very end of your Bible. If you need to look in the table of contents, you can do that. That's totally fine. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. And if you're visiting with us and you're not used to handling a Bible, oh, I'm so glad that you're here, that we are a people of the book. We understand the Bible to be God's word. And through the years, scribes have made it really helpful to know where we are in the Bible by adding chapters and verses. We're going to be in chapter 3, that's the big number, 3, and we're going to be in verses 11 through verse 24. Those are the little numbers. So if you would, turn to 1 John 3, verses 11 to 24. Well, beginning here in verse 11, we see a message that we should love one another. This is the message that we've heard from the very beginning. It's the one that Christ himself had preached to his disciples and to the crowds. And then we see if you flip over to chapter 4, verse 21, this same idea bookends the other side of the section. This commandment we have from him that whoever loves God must also love his brother. So these commands to loving one another, loving Brothers, these commands underscore that from the beginning, disciples are to be identified with their love for one another. And the one another that he's talking about here in verse 11 refers to other Christians. Now, it's true that Christians should love everybody. But there is a unique quality of our love for one another. And so you may notice if you just scan through the passage, the constant references to we and us and brothers and little children and beloved, they're all references to Christians in the church. And so while yes, Christians are to love everybody, there is a unique quality of love that we are to have for other Christians because we share in a unique love that is a love that has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit as we have been united to Christ. And so this whole first section, beginning from verse 11, ending in verse 15, is all about Jesus, or all about John, rather, reminding us of Jesus's command to love that we've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, verse 11. And he says that this is what we know, verse 14, when we do. That we know that we have that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever doesn't love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so John reveals in verses 14 and 15 that this kind of love is an evidence. It's a sign that we have eternal life. John isn't saying, well, listen, if you go out and love other people, 
be a really good person, be generally pleasant and agreeable, maybe not noticeably different, but an agreeable person, then you'll make it to heaven by your love. That's not what John is saying. He means that the badge, the seal, the proof that we have the life of God in our souls is that it works out in our love for other believers. And so how do you know if you've passed from death to life? Because you love Christians. That's John's first point in these first handful of verses. But notice in verse 14 and 15 that John takes it a step further. He's going to say there are two certainties. We just saw in verse 15 that if we are professing Christians and if our profession results in love for other Christians, then we can be certain that we have the eternal life of God in us. But then he says there's a second certainty. In verse 14, we can be equally certain that the person who lacks this kind of love, that is love for the gospel and love for other Christians, is not born of God. Eternal life does not abide in them. They abide in death. John, in fact, is going to reinforce this in the next chapter. If you glance over to chapter four, verse eight, he says this, anyone who does not have love does not know God. And so this frightening prospect of abiding in death and of not possessing true knowledge of God That is why John gives us a negative example in verses 12 and 13. Notice in verse 12, he mentions Cain slaying Abel. And he slew Abel because God esteemed Abel's faith and sacrifice as more righteous than his own. And then he asserts in the following verse, verse 13, that Cain represents the non-Christian world that looks at Christians with hatred and with hostility. But notice it back in verse 12 that John makes a startling claim about Cain and by implication, every non-Christian, every non-believer, everyone who is opposed to the gospel and to Christ's church and to Christians. He says that Cain was of the evil one. Emily slipped up in her reading. She said that Cain was of the devil. That's a really good interpretation because that's exactly what he means. That Cain was Satan possessed. He was anti-Christ. And by implication, verse 13, so is the world if they imitate Cain. And so forget the exorcist. Forget actors with spinning heads and pea soup spewing all over the place. Cases like the Gerasene demoniac in Mark 5 or the evil spirits that literally slap naked the sons of Sceva. Those are fringy episodes. John's asserting that the most common variety of demonic possession is lovelessness. More specifically, the absence of love for Christians and generally for humanity in general. How can we be certain that someone has the devil as their father and not God as their father? How can we be certain that someone follows the prince of the power of the air that's at work in the sons of disobedience? John's answer, they have no love for Christians. They don't love the church. We're meant to be people who experience and give love. That is at the most fundamental level who Christians 
are to be. That we are all, every person everywhere, made in God's image. In the image of the God who is love. And that means that any absence of love in our lives is a hollowing out of our true selves. It's an emptying of ourselves. It's a barrenness. And perhaps you're here this morning and you know this barrenness too well. I mean, maybe you love most of your family and perhaps you love some of your close friends, maybe even a few coworkers. But on the whole, people are just a nuisance to you. They're a bother to you. You really don't like them. And perhaps you don't especially like Christians. You know, the hollowness of soul that makes the heart a bottomless and an empty and a dark pit that even the good things that fall into such a cavernous heart make a distant clanging sound as they tumble into the bottomless emptiness. You were meant to know and to love God. And you were created to experience and to give love. You are created in the image of Of God, that is the God who is love. And so the absence of love in your life is an emptying out of your true self. It is a betrayal of true humanity that is being made in the image of the God who is love. It is spiritual barrenness. It is, according to John, to abide not in life, but in death. This part of John's letter calls you to recognize Lovelessness as the stench of your own soul's death. The rotting of your spiritual corpse. And you should be alarmed. And your problem, at the end of the day, has nothing to do with other people. It's about you. That if you hate or you dislike people, especially Christian people, You don't have the life of God in your soul. That's John's point. It's not them. It's you. You are dead in lovelessness. You need to be brought to newness of life. If you lack love for other people, then the message of 1 John is for you. And I hope you pay close attention to the next few verses. Because I want to give you some good news. We just saw in verses 11 through 15 that Jesus commands us to love. And we don't always do a real good job of that. But now in verses 16 to 18, we're going to see that Jesus' death reveals God's love. Verse 16, by this we know love. How do we know love? This is how we know love. That he laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Perhaps you're saying to yourself, Pastor Jeff's sure being hard on me. I do love other people. Perhaps the others that you have in mind are old friends, immediate family, Maybe even a neighbor or a coworker or two. Perhaps you're thinking, if this were the day of judgment and I was standing before God, I would be able to say, God, I love those people close to me. 
those who loved me in return, I really cared about them. That is not the kind of love that John is talking about. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 46, that even sinners and tax collectors love like that. There's nothing supernatural about that kind of love. No, the love that John has in mind is of a completely different breed. It is a true love, the kind of love that serves as a sign of eternal life in us. That love that is of God and that love that is from God. And so I want to walk through a number of steps that John's going to be making here in chapter 3 and chapter 4 to build his case for both God as being love, it is of him, and that it is from him, through Christ in us out to one another. This is going to be John's logic. Look over at chapter 4, verse 16. Let's begin with this. This might be a sub-point. God is love. John tells us precisely that in verse 16, that God is love. Love lies at the very core of God's being. It's not just what he does. It is who he has always been. That's why if you look up at verse 7, John is able to say this about the true God, that love comes from God. Because God depends on nobody but himself to be God. He is therefore the very fountain. He is the source. He's the very spring from which all true love flows. He doesn't need anybody to love. He has always been love. Therefore, any love that emanates from God is of God. Because all that is in God is God. He has been eternally loving. And he is the fountain of love. Oh, but there are many people today that reverse the order that John has here. They reverse the order from God is love to love is God. They make God in their own image, according to their own desires. And they attribute to God a kind of human love, a flawed and demeaning love. So no matter what happens in life, their notion of love can never be questioned. It can never be violated. In fact, the most unloving thing you can do today is disagree with how they choose to love and whom they choose to love. Love, not God, is the highest authority. Love, not God, has final say over what is true and not true. And that's idolatry. So it's no surprise that many today, as has been the case since Genesis chapter 3, use this idolatrous love of love to give themselves over to sinful desires, to give themselves a license to live contrary to God's law. Oh, but such human ideas of love that we see often in the news and in many publications and all over our social media, such human ideas of love are not what John has in mind when he writes that God is love and love comes from God. If we want to understand John's meaning, then we have to consider the love of God in light of other passages that tell us what, or rather, who God is. So take, for instance, John 4.24, that God is spirit. And he seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Hebrews 12.29 says that God is a consuming fire. 
First John 1 John 1.5, if you look at the beginning of the book, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. In fact, John really just has two main messages in his letter. In the first half of the book, the message is God is love or God is light. Second half of the book, God is love. So what is it that we should conclude then? There's a lot more. The Bible says a lot more about who God is. But if we were to just take this teeny tiny sampling of verses, what do we conclude then about the love of God? We should conclude that the love of God is the kind of love that belongs to the spirit of truth. That God is the arbiter and determiner of truth, not love. Love conforms to God, not our idea of love. It is the kind of love that consumes the unrighteous in judgment. He is a consuming fire. And because God is holy, his love is a holy love, shining without any darkness. And so, yes, while God's love is certainly beautiful and it's a wondrous love, it is also a perfect love and it rejoices in righteousness and it delights in justice. Left to ourselves, we would never know what true love is, where it comes from, or what it looks like. God has to reveal it to us. And that's exactly what he did in Jesus. Look back at chapter 3, verse 16. Here we see that God specifically reveals his love in the sacrifice of his own son. By this we know love. Now we know it. It's been revealed to us. The curtains have been pulled back and we go, ah, that's love. How do we know? That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. That if we want to know what love is, we have to look to Jesus. And not just our own version of Jesus, not, not a good teacher Jesus, not, not a holy rabbi Jesus, not a good buddy Jesus, but we have to look to Jesus broken and battered, hanging on the cross in our place, condemned by God so that we would be free, punished by God so we would be healed, despised and rejected by both men and God because of our sin so that we would be forgiven. That if you want to know what the love of God looks like, we don't just look to Jesus in any form we wish him to be. We look to Jesus first and foremost on the cross. That is where God's love is manifested. That is where God's love and righteousness is most clearly revealed. Jesus on the cross reveals that God is love. And that his love belongs to the spirit of truth. And that it is a love that consumes the unrighteous in judgment. And that it is a pure light in which there is no darkness at all. Friend, listen to me. If you're here and you are not a Christian, do you see why you will not be able to stand before God and offer your small acts of love as proof of your worthiness of heaven? Your love of others will be insignificant, if noticeable at all, when God turns to ask you, did you consider the love of my son? Did you see my son pour out his blood for your sin? Did you trample his blood underfoot as unclean and unnecessary for you? 
Oh, friend, can you see how our claims to righteousness and goodness and love pale compared to Christ crucified for sinners? What are your best acts compared to the sacrifice of the Son of God? The prophet Isaiah said that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. There is enough damnable sin in our best deeds to repulse God. And if our righteousness requires the sacrifice of God's son, what will our sins require of us if we should die in them? Oh, friend, if your righteousness caused the perfect son of God such suffering, what kind of suffering will your sins bring you when you are judged for them? Oh, my non-Christian friend, listen to me. This is the good news of Christianity. That God's love is also a rescuing love. It comes to us before we have any interest in him. Elsewhere, the Bible says that God demonstrates, displays, reveals, manifests his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's going to the cross is evidence of God's love coming to sinners. Making atonement so that we might live through him. Oh, friend, you need a savior. Someone to rescue you from the wrath of God against your righteousness. Because you have none before a holy God who is a consuming fire, who is unapproachable light, in whom there is no darkness at all. And the only Savior that God has provided, the only name under heaven by which men may be saved is Jesus. And Jesus is enough. Oh, don't wait anymore. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to get all the answers. Don't try to get yourself cleaned up. Turn to the Son of God in repentance from sin and place your faith in Him so that you will be saved. God has revealed His love in His Son. But we're also going to see here in the second part of this section that God also reveals his love through his people. Look at the second half of verse 16. We just saw that we know love because Christ has revealed it and laying down his life for us. Therefore, John says, second half of verse 16, we should lay down our lives for the brothers. He repeats the same idea in chapter 4, verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is the whole point of verses 17 and 18. That if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Oh, little children, let us not love in word and in talk. Let's just not talk a good game, but let's do it in deed and truth. Let's not just be hearers of the word. Let's be doers of the word, is what he's saying. That our love for one another makes God visible. John makes this point again in chapter 
4, verse 12, he says that no one has ever seen God. But that if we love one another, then God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Some of your translations say completed or filled up. He's not saying that God's love is in any way lacking. What he's saying is that God's love is invisible. How is the invisible love of the invisible God made visible to a sinful world? And the answer that John gives is the way that his people love one another. There's all kinds of people that think that spending too much time with Christians, loving other Christians, well, that works contrary to evangelism. We need to get out of the church and we need to be out in the world more. But John argues quite the opposite. He says that love for Christians, sacrificial Jesus-like love for Christians, reinforces the gospel. It puts flesh on the gospel. It makes the gospel genuinely good news. You cannot divorce one from the other. That the church makes the gospel and makes God visible. Remember how we talked about this last week? In the same way that our unity displays the manifold wisdom of God to the cosmos, our love displays the invisible love of the invisible God to a sinful world who would not otherwise know him. That is John's whole point. Oh, we got to love one another. We got to love one another. And just as the life of God, as we saw in verse 15, is not in a murderous man, back in chapter 3, so God's love, as we see in verses 17 and 18, is not in a miserly man either. It's not in the man who withholds goods from those who are in need when he sees, ah, I so appreciated Clint's prayer. And I just sat there thinking how often, even in my own heart, as a big bad pastor, thinking, I hope someone else takes care of that. Brother, that was a convicting prayer. Thank you for confessing on our behalf, on my behalf. How we handle our material possessions in the face of a brother's physical need says a lot about our spiritual condition. There are always physical needs in this church. Some who need groceries and need to eat. Some who, because of difficulties at work, need help paying bills. Some who need actual furniture. These things are always taking place. But here's the deal. In a, in a church that rests kind of in the middle of a generally middle-class environment, it can seem at first glance that not everybody has a physical need. Not all of us are impoverished. Not all of us have immediate physical needs. But everybody here certainly has spiritual needs. Even if you don't have a physical need, you have a spiritual need. And so it's also the case, not just how we handle our material possessions says a lot about our spiritual condition, but it's also true that how we handle our immaterial possessions, such as our time and our emotional energy to meet a brother or sister's spiritual need, also says a lot about our spiritual condition. Because here's the deal. Not everybody in here has physical needs, but everybody in here has spiritual needs, has relational and emotional needs. 
And there's not a soul in this room that doesn't need help from other brothers and other sisters to endure in their obedience to Christ. No one in here can say, I don't belong. And no one in here can say, I don't need you. That's what we just learned back in 1 Corinthians 12 last week. If you haven't listened to that sermon, you got to listen to it. Go back online and listen to it. It's an important message from an important passage for our church. This means that no member of this church is ever without physical needs met and it's never without spiritual needs met. And no member of this church is without the spiritual means by which to meet those needs. If, according to John, God's love abides in them. Meaning that I don't know that I have enough love to love those who need to be loved. If God's love abides in you and God is love and his love is infinite and eternal, then you have an infinite and eternal well of resources by which to love other people. Christians never dispose other people. We don't get rid of other people. We never say, theologically speaking, I don't have enough love for that person. If we feel that way, it's because we are failing to abide in God's love. Now, that's not to say that we love people exactly the way that Christ loves. We don't lay down our lives physically and make atonement for sin, but he's the model for how we love. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many that he sets the pattern that all disciples are discipling and there are no undiscipled disciples. We're all helping one another follow Jesus. So whether it's the physical needs or the spiritual needs of our brothers and sisters, how we regard other Christians in their need says a lot about the authenticity of our love for God. Beloved, this is what it means to be the church. Genuine Christians with open hearts and open pockets and open Bibles to other Christians in need. We are to be a people who have come to know God's love and who spread that love to one another so that God's love is made visible to the watching world. That's why our church covenant says, we will walk together in brotherly love exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and graciously exhort and encourage one another according to God's word at appropriate times. You should have heard three qualities of our love for one another in that promise that we've made to God and one another. Here in 1 John, we've seen that it's a giving, it's a generous love. But it's also a walking love. We will walk together in brotherly love. It is a guarding love. We will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. And it is a speaking love, graciously exhorting and encouraging one another according to God's word. It is a walking love. It is a speaking love. And it is a guarding love. Okay? Hang with me. Keep your, keep your finger there. Put your little ribbon in there. Bookmark it in your phone, and I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's consider that first point in our church covenant, that our love is a walking love. Ephesians chapter 5. Love the sound of rustling pages. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 2. See what the Apostle Paul says here? And walk in Love, that word, that verb walk is plural. 
He's saying y'all walk together in love. It's a command, yes, given to individual Christians, but it's a command given to church as a whole, that y'all, as the church, are to walk in love. And in the New Testament, that idea of walk always signifies a believer's way of life. It's what characterizes them. Remember, we talked about that last week. It's their gait. It's their swagger. You know who they are by the way that they walk. And here, Paul says, you got to walk in love. And when we do this, Paul says, according to verse 1, we are imitating God. Do you hear echoes of what John's teaching? God is love. And because love is from God and has been given to us in Christ, we therefore love. So he's saying when we walk in love, we imitate God who is love. You see? Oh, all the Bible fits together. Doesn't contradict one another. Jesus and Paul and John, oh, they're best friends, and they go together like peanut butter and jelly. Grape, not strawberry. Those seeds are nasty, y'all. But it all fits together. That we are imitating God. And just like we learned in 1 John, any love that imitates God is a love that loves like Jesus. Look again at verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Well, how did he do that? He gave himself up for us a fragrant offering, and a sacrifice to God. His act of worship to God was to lay down his life for his friends. That was what worship looked like in the Son of God to the Father. And that's how he loved us. That the love that characterizes our church, the love that should imitate God in our church is a sacrificing love. The kind of love that says, I'm willing to lay down my pride and my reputation and my comfort and my preferences and my leisure and my sleep and (gasps) my kids sleep and anything else that's required of me, whatever it takes to be present and to do good in the lives of fellow members in this church. That's what it means for our love to be a walking love. It characterizes us that our love is our swagger It's our gate. It's the way that people identify us. But our love isn't only a walking love. No, according to our covenant, our love is also a speaking love. Because to do life with one another and to do ministry among one another and to help one another follow Jesus is word-centered ministry at its most fundamental level. Look back one chapter to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says this in verse 15. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, here's the goal, We're to grow up in every way into him who's the head in Christ. How does our church grow? I'm not talking about numerical growth. I'm talking about how does our church grow to look more and more like Jesus? Answer, we speak the truth in love. He goes on and says the same thing in verse 25. Look at that. Therefore, having put away falsehood, we're not about lying. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are, here's the reason, members of one another. That word, truth speaking, is the glue that holds us together. And then he repeats himself again in verse 29. I'll let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. That means it's got to be done in wisdom. That it may give grace to those who hear. There's the goal. We want to see people grow. We want to be united. And we want to give grace to other people. How do you do that? You've got to speak the truth. It's one thing to serve one another, but it's a whole other thing to speak to one another. We see all over the Bible, throughout the book of Acts, Mark chapter 4, that the seed that is implanted into the hearts of men is what ultimately bears fruit, and the seed is the word of God. 
that our church has to be fundamentally word-centered, and so does our discipleship of one another. This is the heart of discipleship. And so if you want a brief summary of ministry for why you need a pastor and why you need committed brothers and sisters and why they need you and why we all need to help one another follow Jesus together, it's summed up in these five words. Speak the truth in love. You go, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't really know my Bible that well. That's why you need to be here on Wednesday and make time for it. That's why when you come here on Sunday morning, you have your Bibles open and you need to be writing and thinking not only in terms of what can I learn, but how can I learn this in such a way that it might benefit other people should God in his grace give me the opportunity to speak truth to them at appropriate times. Right? We don't want to be cul-de-sacs where all the truth jumbles up into one place. We want to be thoroughfares where the word of God is coming into us and out of us, out to other people. That's got to be our mindset as we sit under the teaching of the word and read the Bibles ourselves and speak God's word to one another. Because all fruitful ministry is word ministry. And this means two things for us practically. It means, first of all, that we must be committed to truth speaking. Everything you see there in Ephesians 4 is a command, not optional, right? That's not just what varsity Christianity looks like, but the JV get a break. This is what all Christians do. So we are committed to truth speaking, that God has ordained that the way you will persevere through this life and into the next is all about the ministry of the word to one another. It's not just about the pastor's responsibility to speak the truth of God, though perhaps it begins there. Every member has a duty to speak truth to one another. But secondly, and equally important, our truth speaking must be done in love. Tim Keller says this, Truth without love is imperious self-righteousness. Love without truth is cowardly self-indulgence. Good theology lacking love is bad theology. We speak the truth to one another out of genuine heartfelt concern for one another. And we do so with wisdom, as he says, as fits the occasion, which means there's going to be some times that you need to hold your tongue and you need a listener more than you're a speaker. And then there's going to be other times where you need to speak and not remain silent. Oh, and we need to pray that God gives each one of us the wisdom. John promises that if we're lacking, he'll give it to us generously. Oh, but we need wisdom to know how truth speaking fits the occasion in love. And when somebody in this church says something stupid at the wrong time to somebody else, then we forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. That's Colossians 3. How has he forgiven us? Well, he takes our debt and he wipes it clean. That's Colossians 2. See how Paul just kind of builds on his own argument all the time? This is why you need to read your Bible. It's so great. Because inevitably, all of us in here are going to say dumb things or we're not going to speak when we should have. And we're going to hurt some feelings when we should have been more gentle and more tender than we should have. And we quickly seek forgiveness and we forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. And we plow forward together in grace and patience and love. But we speak truth in love. And at the very heart of this truth speaking gets to the third point of our church covenant. And that is that our love is a guarding love. Turn back over to 2 John 6 through 9. 2 John Verse 6. There's only one chapter in 2 John. Go all the way to 2 John. 
which for you math whizzes is right after 1 John. Beginning in verse six. And this is love. Sound familiar? John's obsessed with it. That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. That just as you've heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. That is those who don't love the the church. But verse eight, listen to this. Here's the key. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for, but may win a full reward. For everyone that goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. To watch over one another is to guard one another with the gospel against sin and against error. Hebrews 3 says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, speak to one another every day, as long as it's called today, meaning don't wait for tomorrow. There may not be a tomorrow. If you got a chance to speak truth and you can do it in love, speak truth, exhort. Why? So that none of you, he says, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. One of your primary responsibilities as a member of this church is to watch over fellow brothers and sisters in this way as they seek to do the same for you. And you can't do that if you're not where they are and they can't do that if they're not with you. You got to be together to do this kind of love. And this watchfulness, according to our church covenant, is to be marked by an, quote, affectionate care. It's the kind of concern that we might exercise over our own children or a younger brother or a sister, someone who is vulnerable. And so it's a familial love that shows equal concern for all members. That's what we talked about last week, 1 Corinthians 12. Not just love for those members who we think are easiest to love. So our love is a walking love and our love is a speaking love and our love is thirdly and finally a guarding love. But our love for one another does one last thing. Turn back to 1 John 3. We've seen in verses 11 to 15 that Jesus commands us to love. Then we saw in verses 16 to 19 that God's love is revealed in the death of Jesus. Now, finally, in verses 19 through 24, we'll see that our love assures us that we are saved. Really, in fact, the whole letter of 1 John is written to teach Christians how they can be certain that they are, in fact, Christians. Nine times, in fact, in chapter 3 and chapter 4, we find the phrase, this is how we know. And so in these chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4, John is providing three tests, three ways that we can know whether we are truly in Christ. Test number one is in verses 19 and 21, and it's an ethical test. Read along with me. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Oh, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. Sometimes your heart will condemn you and accuse you. It'll say, you're not really a Christian. You don't really have the truth. Truth really isn't in you. If you were, you wouldn't do this or you wouldn't keep doing that. Oh, beloved, listen, your love for other Christians, according to John, silences those condemning whispers. 
We know we belong to the truth if we love our brothers and sisters in truth and in deed. In other words, the church is, in a sense, an assurance of salvation cooperative. That as we love one another, all of us, we grow in our confidence that we belong in God. We belong to God. Oh, but not only does our love for one another give us confidence, but so does our obedience. And that's what we see in verses 21 to 23. That's test number two, the behavioral test. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. And this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he has commanded us. Because we obey God and we please him in our actions, when we do that, we gain confidence before him. Remember what Jesus said? He said, you love me if you obey my commandments. How do you know that you're in the love of God? You obey God. But not only that, that because we're to obey him and please him, we see here that that our prayers are answered. We see this practically. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, granting her Honor as a fellow heir in the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. You know what Peter's saying? Saying the same thing John's saying. Love your wives. How am I supposed to love them? You love them the way that Jesus loves. And what happens when you do that? God answers your prayers. That's easy logic. But it goes even further than that. Because if you... Leave it at that. The potential problem with this teaching becomes obvious. None of us perfectly obeys God. No man perfectly pleases God. How then can, we, can this confidence be had? How can we be certain that our prayers will be heard and answered? Don't our unanswered prayers prove that we don't obey or we don't please God? What does it mean to obey God? Well, verse 23 tells us exactly what it means. Did you see that? Let me read it again. This is his commandment that we're to obey. We believe in Jesus. That's where it all begins. It's no more pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's no more white knuckling. It begins and ends with believing upon Jesus. That when we believe on Jesus, all of his righteous obedience is credited to our account. Jesus obeyed the law of God for us. And he became our righteousness and our holiness. And so the person who comes to Christ in belief is the person that pleases God. Our lives are hidden Christ so that now God doesn't look upon us in sin, but looks upon us just as if we were Jesus. And so he looks on us in the same way that he looks on his own son. This is my son. This is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. And so the person who truly comes to Christ and believes upon Christ loves others that have been purchased by their blood. And by virtue of their being in Christ and evidencing that by their love for others, then they now are able to approach God in Christ, the throne of grace in their time of need, with complete, total, unfettered access. So you see John's working backwards in his logic. We obey God by trying to love one another, but this obedience is really more fundamentally just believing in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, then you're in Jesus. And if you're in Jesus, then you have his righteousness. And if you have his righteousness, then you have free unfettered access to the Father. And anything that you ask will be given to you. That is those things which are necessary for life and godliness in Christ. 
But if you don't love other people, then you really have no great confidence that you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, then you don't have his righteousness. And the way to the Father has been blocked off and you have no confidence that your prayers will ever be answered. That's John's logic. So we obey by believing in Jesus. And so to be Christian is simply and truly to know and to rely on God's love for us through Christ. And then to labor, to work out in us what God is working through us. To have that same love flow out from us to other people. Beloved, are you relying on God's unfailing love in Christ? Is that your starting point? Does it feel like loving others is so burdensome and wearisome? Christ says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what yokes are? Yoke is what puts oxen together. Jesus is saying, I'm not saying that rest in me isn't hard work. It's saying that the work that I've called you to is now being supported by world-creating omnipotent power. It's easy. If it's burdensome and wearisome, it's not Jesus. But if you're in Jesus, he says, my yoke is easy and the burden is light. The work becomes light if you start with Jesus first. If you put Jesus on the shelf and go, I gotta do it. You're gonna wear yourself out. That's not what it looks like to abide in his love. But to abide in his love is to believe upon Jesus, to ask for his wisdom, and then to walk in his power to love other people. Thirdly and finally, verse 24, we see our final test, a spiritual test, that whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We can be sure of our standing with Jesus because the spirit of God assures us. That the testimony of the Holy Spirit is the greatest of all assurances. And the confidence that comes from God, the Holy Spirit, makes the other sources of confidence possible. The first thing the Spirit does is operates on man to turn him from sin and to give him a new and holy life through faith in his Son. And that if we believe, it is because the Spirit has quickened us, given us new birth. And if we love, it is because love is the first fruit of the Spirit. And the Father in his love for us sends his spirit into our hearts so that now we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit testifies to our spirits that we are sons of God. Brothers and sisters, how can you be sure that you are a Christian? How can you be sure that eternal life, that the love of God abides in you? It's sign and it's seal. The evidence and the proof is how we love one another. With a generous love, with a walking love, with a speaking love, and with a guarding love. Let's pray together and we'll come to the table.